A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 381, Six Days. Okay, so the story is this. The Junto's reform programme is on a knife edge. Attention had moved away to Ireland and applied to the Protestants there. The House of Lords has shown clearly that a majority of them now feel that reform has probably gone quite far enough. So they're standing firm against Pym on the existence and political role of the bishops, the king's absolute right to retain military control, and his right to appoint whomever he wishes as his ministers without parliamentary approval. Even the commons, though more radical than the lords, was now divided deeply. The king had built a substantial party in the commons, which also believed reform had gone far enough. As a result, as we heard last time, the Grand Remonstrance had passed its folk by a whisper. For Charles himself, the time for compromise with the Junto was now gone. Now he could use this new parliamentary support to re-establish control and visit his vengeance on the Junto for the crime they'd forced him to commit in abandoning Strafford against his own honour. But if he was to succeed, Charles would need not only to win on the floor of the House, but on the streets of London, where those marchers and petitioners and church ministers had made such a massive impact and created such enormous pressure. So, objective number one. Nurture, feed, inspire that traditional groundswell of loyalty, reverence and fear for the majesty of the king. So, as Charles, Henrietta Maria and Charles the young Prince of Wales entered London, for the first time in his reign, Charles treated the world to a procession, Tudor-style, This was the occasion to woo not just ordinary Londoners, but also to bind the city fathers and the mayor to him. Edward Nicholas the courtier was convinced that the city elite were also weary of the insolent carriage of the schismatics and their efforts to gain the affections of the vulgar. Popular politics was a four-letter word. So in they came in a glittering gold coach, surrounded by the grandest names of the royal household, all decked out in their Sunday best, and they were met by the dignitaries of the city at Hoxton. Charles was not only showing the wealth of the monarch in all its glory, but he was also carefully showing its power. There were maybe 500 reformados, the name for soldiers recontracted to royal service, accompanying the royal coach with him. They were joined there by the mayor and 500 London liverymen, and this vast and glorious assembly processed in stately magnificence through the London streets towards the Guildhall. People cheered. They threw their hats. One observer recorded, Drums beat, trumpets sound, muskets rattle, cannons roar, flags displayed. At the Guildhall were all sorts of public speeches and the mutual backslapping of the mighty that we're all accustomed to. 
and Charles threw the city fathers a bone. He would restore their charter to Londonderry, which had been removed back in 1635 with so much cost and political damage to the relationship. Delighted, in return, the city gave him £30,000 in gold pieces. I mean, I kid you not, that's £3 million or more in the Stuart equivalent of a sort of suitcase. There you go, Chuck. Treat yourself. As night fell on the 25th of November 1641, the city fathers and the king again processed through the streets of London towards Whitehall. The bells rang. All 121 parish churches kept up the peal at the same time. Must have been chaos. The conduits ran with wine. There were an unfeasible number of bonfires. The people responded with loud and joyful acclamation, crying, God bless and long live King Charles and Queen Mary. And their majesties reciprocally and heartily thanked the people with great expressions of joy. It was a PR triumph. Gold star, big tip, Blue Peter badge. The news of the king's welcome spread quickly through the country through the network of letters. So, for example, Eleanor, the Countess of Sussex, wrote to Edmund Verney, writing approvingly of the London crowd, that methinks the king should love the people of England best, for sure their bounty and obedience is most to him. You might wonder why these folk, so recently, angrily marching, petitioning and protesting with fury, whipped up by Pym and the Junto, why were they now so much in love with the king head? Was it just because they liked party? Or were they delighted to see their king hopefully come at last home to lead the fight against the rebellious Irish papists that seemed to threaten disaster against them? Or maybe, also, there was a large portion of them, just like in the Commons, who felt enough was enough now. They felt threatened by social chaos. But whatever the reason or the combination of reasons, the king had stated the first line of his message. He was back, in control, the symbol of tradition, order, social hierarchy. Someone for the people to get behind. He'd forged a new bond with the city of the elite and they were crucial to his success because together the mayor and the aldermen of the city of London controlled the trained bands, 3,000 of them, and they could help control the streets for the king, suppress the marchers and petitions of the masses. The likes of the Puritan aldermen John Van and Isaac Pennington had for the moment been knocked into the background. The struggle for the control of the London streets would be crucial, but was a real challenge. And if Charles thought that all he had to do was cry, Church in danger! and his enemies would disappear, he was being way too optimistic. London was the most radical place in religion as far as religion is concerned, and there were many who were desperate for reform of the church. Many considered bishops as just a step away from papistry anyway. So, just days after the welcome of his return, a crowd of protesters again appeared in Westminster Palace Yard, armed with swords and staves this time, and they were chanting, No bishops! No bishops! clamouring outside the windows and doors of the commons and lords. For the Junto, this was probably a welcome noise. He was their army, their supporters. The lords, though, were absolutely horrified at this show of public defiance. They would have None of it. They ordered the commander of the palace guard, the Earl of Dorset, to re-establish control. Dorset drew up his men and he gave repeated orders for the crowd to disperse. Repeatedly, they did no such thing. The chants and the uproar carried on and on 
until the moment of truth arrived and Dorset ordered his men to fire on the crowd. So this then was your Bastille Day moment, the point when violence arrived. Except it didn't. Dorset's men disobeyed their orders. Dorset's men did not fire. The threat, though, seems to have brought the crowd to its senses and this time, finally, they dispersed when ordered. The very next political challenge came on the 1st of December when, with a fanfare, Pym and the Commons presented the Grand Remonstrance to the King along with a petition demanding control of the army and also the removal of bishops from the House of Lords. The argument here was that the religious leaders had no place in secular politics, which was a constant refrain of the Scots. But for Pym and the Junto, there was a political reason too. The bishops were a solid phalanx of 13 Arminian ultra-royalists. Their removal might just be enough to give them back control of the lords. But Charles negotiated the shoals of the remonstrance with some political skill. Though privately, it infuriated him. It infuriated the Queen even more because of its virulence of the rhetoric about a Catholic plot in conjunction with the Irish. So it was a widely believed rumour that Henrietta Maria had conspired with the Earl of Antrim in Ireland to keep control of the army in Ireland. And it was a widely believed rumour because it was probably true. Henrietta Maria was ever closer to Charles now and her advice was increasingly hardline. Gone was the voice of moderation from the time of Bedford. Charles's leading advisers now were a group of refugees from the cause of reform, panicked by the religious radicalism. The Episcopal Party, as Simmons Dews called them in his diary. Edward Hyde, Viscount Falkland, and rather crucially, a man called George Digby. I say crucially because Charles might make some bad decisions on occasion, but with the likes of George Digby at your side, it's probably little wonder. We'll get to that, and sorry if George's mum and dad can hear from beyond the grave. I'm sure he was a lovely child. Anyway, Charles coolly and politely received the petition, and he said he would respond, and he gave the job of responding to his wordsmith, best and most moderate adviser, Edward Hyde. The result was something of a masterpiece. It refused any reference to the remonstrance. It was monstrously long anyway, and Charles dismissed it as unparliamentary because it had never been approved by the Lords. Hyde instead focused simply on the petition, and he made a clarion call to Charles's party to religious moderates everywhere. He defended the bishops, fundamental, Hyde wrote, fundamental to the laws of the kingdom, appealing to law, always a good thing in England. It criticised the schismatics who were causing chaos and disorder, he reasserted the king's fundamental right to control the military, which was long accepted as the king's sole responsibility. He had a further opportunity then to beat the drum as the last bastion of social order and defender of religious harmony almost immediately after responding to the petition. Since the start of December, the more radically inclined members of London had been gathering a petition, a petition to have bishops and Catholic peers removed from the House of Lords, terrified as they were that they would bring rebellion from Ireland into England. The petition was due to be presented to Parliament on the 11th of December. On the 10th of December, Charles stepped in and he ordered the Lord Keeper to send 200 soldiers into Westminster Palace Yard to stop the petition being presented. 
he issued a proclamation confirming that no changes were to be made in religion. Presumably he just copied out the other billion he'd done in the past. He condemned anyone who disrupted an orderly church service. It was a bold move. In the commons and the streets, they saw the soldiers and they feared that the king was preparing to use force. Force to dissolve parliament and suppress protest. The commons angrily ordered the men to be removed. But for others, it was actually a welcome relief. The king was being firm. He was restoring order. In Dover, when the king's proclamation was read out, a local wrote that it caused much rejoicing. The people crying out, God bless his majesty. We shall have our old religion settled again. But on the 11th of December, despite the king's proclamation, the petition was duly presented by a crowd of 400 aldermen, deputies, merchants and members of the London Common Council. In the end, everything passed off peacefully, but there was chaos and protest almost daily now in London. The atmosphere was becoming fevered. There were groups of apprentices and citizens, but most alarmingly, soldiers and armed men were everywhere, the king's reformados. And it is now that two words enter the English usage. All these long-haired reformados, soldiers, contemptuously dismissed as caballeros, acquire the name of cavalier. Conversely, one writer observed the protesting crowds and remarked that all of them wore no hair below their ears and called them roundheads. Cavaliers and roundheads, these would become symbols of division as time went by, insulting words imbued with meaning way beyond the immediate hairstyles or clothes or whatever. The cavalier stereotype was a swordsman, irresponsible, swaggering, intent on destroying English liberties and revenging the humiliations heaped on his king. The roundheads, meanwhile, were sour, killjoy Puritans, shattering England's old harmony and unity and banishing popular fun and games. There were stereotypes, of course, but as such they did have a kernel of truth. And the names helped foster and deepen division. Particularly influential with Charles now then were two people, Henrietta Maria and George Digby. Henrietta Maria was not only increasingly firm against compromise, but also increasingly fearful that she would be specifically targeted in the storm of public panic about a Catholic plot. She actually feared that she'd be taken, tried and executed. And in these fears, she may have been fed by one Lucy Hay, Countess of Carlisle. You might remember we talked about Lucy Hay quite a while back. She joined Henrietta Maria's court as a lady-in-waiting. She ran famous salons for the literary and the political in London. It seems that through the 1640s, Lucy Hay had increasingly aligned herself with the reformers and had a strong relationship with John Pym. And the contention is that Lucy Hay actively fed fake plans and fears into Henrietta Maria's ear. This is edge of history stuff, with much speculation about it. But it may be that through Lucy Hay, Henrietta Maria got to hear a rumour of a meeting where Pym had discussed impeaching the Queen for being involved in the Irish rebellion through her contact with Antrim. Either way, Fear for her personal security was now a powerful motivator for both Charles and Henrietta Maria at this critical point. George Digby, meanwhile, was a very colourful character, 30 years old now. 
Up to March 1641, he'd been one of the reformers and led the trial team against Strafford. But around that time, he switched. What drove Digby into the king's camp was, like so many others, the feeling that things had gone far enough and the cause of religion. He was a firm adherent of the Church of England, bishops and all, and detested religious radicalism. From April 1641, the relationship between Digby and King had become close and Charles had elevated him to the House of Lords. Charles knew he could trust Digby and they became very thick. This would be a problem, I have to tell you, because George was wildly optimistic about things. And as we've said, Charles has been guilty of the same lack of realism at various points. Hyde was later to reflect that Digby's fatal infirmity was to think difficult things easy and not consider possible consequences. Charles, though, now played another card, which acquired credit for him but in both Houses of Parliament and on the streets. He boldly proposed to lead 10,000 men to Ireland if Parliament would provide the money. This put the Junto into a very difficult position. They prevaricated, worrying about giving King access to such a tool of oppression as a 10,000-strong army. As more and more devastated refugees arrived back in England, in the ports and the villages, the issue waxed stronger and stronger in the public imagination and the Parliament dithered. The King looked decisive, Pym and Parliament looked weak. Well, so far so good then. For all the protests and the remonstrance, the bishops stayed in the Lords, the militia stayed under royal command, the Lords continued to block the Commons' bills. Yet Charles would have to play it carefully. Things could go either way. On the 21st of December, as a sign of this, the elections to the London Common Council were a train smash for Royalists. Puritans swept the board and the Royalist mayor looked increasingly isolated. And next... Charles started to blunder. The Tower of London, then, was the military key to London and its security and control. Since the days of Billy the Conch, the White Tower had been the symbol of royal power. It was in the hands of the Lieutenant of the Tower, a man at the moment called William Balfour. Now, Balfour had proved distressingly independent-minded at the time of the army plot, so Charles wanted somebody who could be reassuringly willing to blindly follow orders and on whom, accordingly, he could rely. So, Balfour must go and his independent mind must go with him. Well, handily, George Digby knew a good man. I know a good egg, sir. Thomas Lunsford, sir. Sold as a rock, sir. Now, Charles knew a bit of Lunsford. He'd seen him because he'd fought well at Newburn against the Scots. And so, on the 22nd of December, Charles announced that Balfour was to be replaced as Lieutenant of the Tower by Thomas Lunsford. Trouble is, Lunsford wasn't unknown, and Lunsford history proclaimed him to be a lout and a thug. He'd been caught killing one of his neighbour's hounds, been fined, and then had taken a pot shot at their servants and duly sent to prison. From there he'd done a bunk, taken up military service in France, and been outlawed. He'd returned, though, paid a fine, and been duly pardoned, and won the king's admiration at Newburn. Now he was lieutenant of the tower, and the people were terrified of him. As far as the City of London, the Commons and most people in the streets were concerned, 
This was the precursor to a military coup by the king. He was getting his ducks in a row. The ducks were the people of London, and the guy with the gun aiming to win the bid cuddly toy was Thomas Lunsford. So there was uproar at the announcement. Rumours circulated that Lunsford was a cannibal. I mean, really? Merchants started taking their coin reserves from the tower. The Common Council petitioned the House of Commons for his removal. Rumours were abroad that the apprentices were planning to grab Lunsford after Christmas and remove him by force. In Parliament, they agreed. This was the first step in a new army plot. They petitioned the Lords to have him removed, but the Lords, interestingly, said no. Military command was the King's gig. More than my job's worth, this has gone far enough, sort of vibe. The result were yet more riots. Boxing Day, though not to be called that until 1743, apparently, was a Sunday, and the pulpits burned with fury. The mayor rushed to Whitehall as the streets rang with the cries against the wicked bloody colonel, and in a panic he begs Charles to remove Lunsford. Charles did not want to do it, did not want to appear to bow to the mob, but to keep the mayor sweet, he agreed, on condition that the mayor could control the streets of London instead. On the 27th, therefore, Charles removed Lunsford. Peace could be restored. But it was too late. Distrust of the king's motives were home to roost with a vengeance. Westminster was awash with London citizens crying, No bishops! No bishops! Among them was John Lilburn, still a firebrand despite his imprisonment and whipping, and his marriage to Elizabeth. Becoming a married man and father did not stop Lilburn turning out into the streets and marching with the crowds to Westminster Palace. And he and his men around him were armed, ready to defend themselves against Lunsford and his cavaliers. And at Palace Yard, they did indeed meet with Lunsford, and the two groups faced off. The protesters shouting, No bishops! in the faces of the petrified guards. Enraged, one of the captains of the guards, one David Hyde, drew his sword and roared that he would cut the throats of those round-headed dogs that bawled against bishops! Who says no bishops? The crowd roared back, We say no bishops! Call and response, I think you call it, in country dancing. But the dance this time came with cold steel. Lunsford and his men drew, musket shots were fired, one ball hitting Lilburn, and the protesters fled, some of them up the stairs to the court of requests, then onto the roof, where Lilburn and others showered tiles down on the soldiers below, until, overwhelmed by the crowd, Lunsford and his men turned and fled, helter-skelter down Parliament stairs into a boat and away onto the Thames in safety with the jeers and calls of the crowd behind them. But then behind came the tramp, tramp, tramp of hundreds of feet. It was the militia, the trained bands. The mayor was good for his promise to the king to clear the streets. And this time the protesters went, filing silently out from Palace Yard, dispersing through the streets back to their homes, and order was restored again. Except not for long. The people of London had breathed in the drug of power and they liked its fragrance. The next day they were back, masses of them, surrounding Westminster Abbey this time. 
Chaos and the threat of violence was in the air and the mayor was impotent to clear the streets. The MP Henry Slingsby wrote home, I cannot say we've had a Merry Christmas, but the maddest one I ever saw. A Navy captain who was there commented, Both factions talk very big. It's a wonder there is no more blood yet spilt. Ominously, a new phrase appears for the first time from him. There is talk of civil war. No doubt, but if the king not comply with the commons in all things they desire, a sudden civil war must ensue, which every day we see approaches nearer. The French ambassador looked on, and he agreed. He was astounded that war had not already arrived. If matters had gone this far in France, he said, the town would have been alight and awash with blood within 24 hours. On the 29th of December, the whole thing started over again. The crowd was outside Parliament, chanting no bishops, guardsmen fighting to make space for peers to get to the white chamber of Parliament. The bishops were terrified. Only two had come to the Lords on the 28th and absolutely none dead on the 29th. They feared a lynching. Mud was thrown at the guardsmen and on at least one occasion they cracked and charged the crowd. Charles issued a proclamation ordering the crowds home and if they did not he would order the trained bands to shoot to kill. To slay and kill such of them as persist in the tumultuary and seditious way and disorders. The attitudes of the commons and the lords towards the crowds outside was distinctly at odds. The lords now asked the commons to join with them in condemning their behaviour. And this time it was the turn of the commons to refuse. Those people out there were the reformers' strongest allies and biggest lever. They had absolutely no intention of acting against them. The Lords, on the other hand, were furious at the popular disorder. Digby moved that the Lords should declare all their discussions unfree because of the pressure exerted from the crowd, and the proposal almost passed. On the 30th of December, Archbishop Williams brought a petition to the King on behalf of the 13 bishops. All of them were in fear of their life from the crowds and from the chants against them. This could not go on. The petition of the bishops demanded that they take a stand here and now, that all acts taken be declared null and void when passed under pressure from a crowd. Charles was delighted. Here was more pressure he could exert on the reformers. Here was another call to conservatives everywhere to rally behind him and the bishops and reject this gross activism of the people. Charles took the momentous decision also to present the petition to the House of Lords for debate. Effectively, the King was petitioning Parliament. But it was another blunder, because he had misjudged the situation. What if this petition was approved and a law duly passed? What of all the acts passed in March when the crowds had marched against Stratford? And could the people no longer exercise their ancient right to petition? And who ever heard of a king petitioning Parliament? This was him bullying the Lords to do his bidding. Pym saw the potential in this. He proposed now that the bishops be charged with treason and incredibly the Lords agreed because they also saw this as an unwarranted interference in their independence and authority. The bishops here were trying to shanghai them into line. The petition of the bishops then brought the commons and the Lords back into agreement. 
By the end of the day, ten of the bishops were behind bars in the tower, a grim rejection of their case and an uncompromising message to the king. The following day, New Year's Day, was worse and another day of disorder. Both Pym and the king now feared a violent coup against them because Westminster Palace, outside Parliament, was swarming with soldiers, cavaliers, reformados who had gathered together to join Lunsford and the Guard to fight the cause of the King. Pym dramatically ordered the doors of the House close and demanded the trained bands come to defend Parliament. But meanwhile, Charles himself was under siege too. 200 demonstrators with swords and staves came to Whitehall Palace and clashed with the King's guards. The noise pushing through the windows of the palace to the courtiers within. That day, Edward Hyde received an urgent summons from his friend George Digby from the palace. He was to come to Whitehall Palace for a secret meeting with the king and queen. Once there, he learned what the king was planning. On the advice of Henrietta Maria and Digby, Charles had decided it was time to act, to destroy the junto while he still could, before they and the crowds reduced him to being Parliament's servant. First of all, the government must be remade, populated with the King's loyal supporters and any members of the junto rejected. So Charles offered Hyde the post of Solicitor General, replacing Oliver St John. Now Hyde was horrified. Such move, he saw, would kill any chance of compromise, a blow against one of the key members of the junto, so he refused. Nonetheless, Charles went ahead and appointed John Culpepper as his new Chancellor of the Exchequer and Falkland as his new Secretary of State. Charles was forming his team. But what he planned to do next would be the boldest masterstroke of all, when all the world might see what ambitious malice and sedition had been hid under the visit of conscience and religion. Once the scales had been ripped from the eyes of his loyal subjects, they would surely return to grateful obedience and loyalty. And he would show that this small, isolated group of malicious rebels could not escape the king's justice. He would cut off the heads of the many-headed hydra of sedition. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. On the 3rd of January, around 1pm, the Lords were resuming their parliamentary session. If I had been there, no doubt, I would have been comparing notes on the quality of the Bakewell tart at lunch or whatever, and looking forward to a good old kip through the duller of the speeches. But this session was not to be an ordinary one. Instead, the Attorney General turned up and requested an immediate audience. He then proceeded to lay before the House articles of impeachment. The articles of impeachment of Messrs Pym, Hamden, Hollis, Hazelrig and Strode, accusing these five members of the Commons of treason against the King. In addition, they were to seize one of their own number, Lord Mandeville, charged with the same, treason. 
the Attorney General then demanded that the Lords take immediate action to apprehend the members concerned. Well, there was shock. Digby, principal adviser to the King of this strategy, waited confidently for the next step to take place. The King's friends in the Lords would obediently and immediately order the five members to be imprisoned, and any progress of the business of either of the Houses would be made impossible. The Junto would be emasculated, terrified of their likely fate, eager to make amends. The King's party and Parliament would be reinvigorated and empowered, royal supremacy would be fully restored, and all this talk of curbing royal powers would be over. But, to Digby's increasing horror, the reaction of the Lords was nothing like what he'd expected. Rather than following this course laid out for them, there was instead outrage, there was confusion, there was doubt. You see, while parliamentary privilege might technically not apply to treason, it was extremely irregular for the king to make such a move. And who'd ever heard of the king impeaching a member of parliament? That was a procedure for the commons to do and the laws to then investigate. And more news kept coming in. It was quickly relayed that while the Attorney-General had been doing his thing, the King's soldiers had been breaking into the five members' houses without warrants and seizing all their papers. Furthermore, it transpired that Charles had already published publicly the details of the impeachment. Charles was trying to exploit the propaganda of his masterstroke to the hilt. He firmly believed that when his people saw their evil representatives brought to justice by the King the nation would swing behind their natural master. Right from the start, then, Digby's plan went wrong. Instead of arresting the MPs, the Lords instead moved to investigate first the legality of this procedure. Digby had been wrong. The Lords were no longer the King's loyal servants. This and the petition of the bishops had destroyed their trust in Charles. Digby lost his nerve. He muttered apologetically to Mandeville that the king must have been poorly advised, and he fled. The House duly decided not to immediately arrest the five members of the Commons, or indeed to arrest Mandeville. That night, London was again very tense. People were on the street. All day long there had been groups of armed men gathering. Digby had been seen going from Parliament to the Inns of Court, trying to recruit soldiers there, Around 10.30 that night, a contingent of 40 cannoneers were seen arriving at the tower. Now what could they be for? On whom would they be using their cannon? Nehemiah Wallington wrote in his diary, The aldermen and sheriffs were up that night, and the gates looked into and the chains pulled across the streets, with knocking on the doors for men to stand on their guard. Royal retribution was surely on its way but as no tramp of marching feet or jangle of cavalry emerged, at midnight people started drifting off to bed. But in the morning the tension remained. The shops stayed shut. Everyone was wary, everyone was nervous. In Parliament, the Commons condemned the ransacking of the members' rooms and they'd condemned the printing of the impeachment. But everyone was waiting. What would happen next? During the morning, a note came from the Junto member, the Earl of Essex, who was at Whitehall in his role as Lord Chamberlain. Something was happening there, he said, but he didn't know what, nor did he, did he know when. But there were large contingents of soldiers 
and trained band members and rough-looking reformados milling around in the Whitehall courtyards. Inside the palace, Charles had been planning his next move. His plan had been to let the impeachment take its course, to watch the exposed malignants fall to their inevitable destruction. So what had happened threw him into a quandary. His closest adviser at this point was probably the Queen, herself feeling horribly exposed and threatened as the country's highest-profile Catholic. This was the time for firm action. Anywhere else in the world, those five members of Commons would have been seized from their houses in the middle of the night and thrown into the deepest trail, never mind this legalistic, faffing-around neo-coup thing. Go, you coward, and pull these rogues out by their ears, or never see my face more. Such are the words Henrietta Maria is reported to have said to him. Lucy Hay was with the Queen that very afternoon, finding her solitary and constantly referring to the clock. Then all of a sudden, Henrietta Maria perked up, and she exclaimed to Lucy, At this hour the King is, as I have reason to hope, master of this realm for Pym and his confederates are arrested before now. She had reason for optimism, for at three in the afternoon, as the commons nervously went around their business, at last the feared sound came of marching men. Four hundred armed men marching from Whitehall, at their head a coach containing the king himself, accompanied by Charles Louis, the Elector of Palatine. From the palace yard... Eighty men arrived with swords and pistols, marched into St Stephen's Chapel and filled the open doorway to the chamber, standing ostentatiously, making damn sure they could be seen by the appalled MPs inside. Their captain held his sword upright and his pistol cocked. Another captain leant confidently and arrogantly against the doorframe. And then their king came into the room in complete silence and strode up, to the Speaker's chair. By your leave, Mr Speaker, I must borrow your chair. The Speaker, William Lentall, something of a toady and of course the King's creature, scuttled aside, trying, I assume, to look dignified. Charles sat. Charles scanned the room, looking for his targets. I am sorry for this occasion of coming unto you. I must declare unto you that albeit no king was ever in England shall be more careful of your privileges, yet you must know that in cases of treason no person hath a privilege. All the while Charles was desperately scanning the room. Yet he could see none of the men he'd come to seize. Pym was not in his accustomed place by the bar from where he could direct the business of the house. There was no John Hamden, Denzel Hollis, William Strode, not even that dour, gloomy Leicestershire man, Arthur Hazelrig, who'd stitched up Strafford with his attainder and would be the first up against the wall. They were gone. He had missed them, and his bold gamble had failed. Since I see all the birds have flown, I expect from you that you will send them unto me as soon as they return here. But I assure you, on the word of a king... I never did intend any force, but shall proceed against them in a legal and fair way. 
With weary desperation, Charles looked again round the house and his eyes lit on the ever-so-slightly snivelly speaker, William Lentor, and the ashes of his hopes burst briefly into flame and he demanded of Lentor that he reveal where the five members were. Possibly one of the most remarkable things about the entire English Revolution is that Lentor, the most unremarkable of unremarkable men, found words that would echo through English history and change the role of speaker forever. He knelt deferentially on one knee and said, May it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongues to speak in this place, but as the house is pleased to direct me whose servant I am. I mean, well, he wasn't, actually. The speaker was the king's servant in Parliament, but not any longer he wasn't. There was nothing Charles could do. He gathered his robes and his dignity around him, and he left, picking his way carefully and fastidiously through the bleached bones of all his hopes. Monarchs for centuries had known that their power relied on a veil as thin as silk of semi-divine majesty and an aura of mystery and power. As he walked in humiliation from the room, that veil had not just been pulled aside, but it had been torn from its hangings and trampled in the dirt. There was no mystique anymore, just a man leaving in abject defeat. The room erupted around him and behind him with triumphant and outraged cries of privilege, privilege, the parliamentary privilege that the king's failed coup had abused. The king had been comprehensively outplayed by Pym and his colleagues. Traditionally, it's said to have been the French ambassador who saved the parliamentary bacon of the five members, tipping the wink to a captain waiting in Westminster Palace Yard who then rushed to warn the five members, who then fled St Stephen's through a back door, down to the Watergate into hiding in the city. But there is another theory, a theory that Pym knew full well what was going to unfold that day because Lucy Hay had picked up the news from the Queen's comings and goings in the morning and sent a message already to her ally Pym. That Pym and the five members knew this could be the graveyard of Charles's hopes, so rather than saving themselves from a treason charge by not coming in, they stayed in the Commons that day in full knowledge to lay out the bait for the King to seize. Still, the King wasn't finished yet. It was crucial now that he seized Pym and his colleagues if he was still going to succeed. That night he ordered the ports closed and for the City of London to be searched. By the morning of the 5th of January, London was forming into armed camps, the King at Whitehall while around the Guildhall, supporters of Parliament tried to take control of the trained bands. Parliament declared that it was no longer safe at Westminster and they adjourned to the Guildhall. But it was there where Charles went next, because if he could control the London Common Council, he might yet be saved because they held the key to the trained bands, the militia. On his request, Common Council assembled at the Guildhall in the afternoon and as his entourage travelled through the streets towards the city, a royal proclamation declared that the traitors were so ashamed they dare not even show themselves. Surely now his ally the mayor would swing the city fathers behind their king. When he arrived, the Guildhall was packed. I mean, who was going to miss this? Charles appealed to them all not to harbour the five members and to give them up. But the Common Council was restless, the atmosphere was hostile. He had some supporters who cried, God bless the King! But many more shouted, Parliament! 
privileges of Parliament. In exasperation, Charles asked them what they wanted. To hear the advice of our Parliament, they shouted back. The mayor was powerless. Charles had united London against him, and as he left the Guildhall, the streets were rammed. He had to force his way through them, crawling back to Whitehall, thousands of people chanting, Privileges of Parliament! Privileges of Parliament! An ironmonger called Henry Walker managed to push his way past the guards and thrust the paper into the king's coach. It contained a biblical call to arms to his fellow radicals. To your tents, O Israel! For Londoners, it was Parliament that represented their nation now. It was no longer the king. On the 6th, London was in turmoil. Offers of support for the five members came from the apprentices, from the Southwark-trained bands, from the mariners who were in port. In Buckinghamshire, the freeholders gathered to march on London in defence of their MP, John Hamden. That night, yet another rumour, yet another panic. A shot was heard from the barracks in Covent Garden. The cry went up along the streets. Neighbours banged on doors. Shouts of, arm, arm, ran through the city. Again the chains went up across the streets. Portcullises into the city were closed. Women gathered furniture and boiled water to throw down on the feared Cavalier army from the rooftops. The City of London acquired a new military commander, Command was removed from the control of the royalist mayor into the hands of Philip Skippen, the hard-bitten Puritan veteran of the Thirty Years' War. Skippen's command quickly became a citizen army for all London, as the trained bands of Westminster and Southwark were added to his remit. And what of Charles, then? After the failure of his visit to the Guildhall, he and Henrietta seemed unsure about what their next steps could be. It became increasingly clear that their gamble had failed, the bolt had been shot. Over six days in January, from the planning meeting on the 1st of January to the disaster at Guildhall, Charles had destroyed everything he'd been working towards since Strafford's sacrifice. It transpired that when Charles had exposed the deeds of the men he claimed to be the enemies of the people, the people had decided that it was in fact he, Charles, that was the enemy of the people. He had succeeded in reuniting lords and commons against him. No king's party in Parliament could help him now. Sir Charles had a choice, fight or flight, or to put it another way, defeat or flight and fight. Both he and Henrietta Maria feared for his life. Although he had some military support, it was a mixed bag of guardsmen, ex-soldiers and militia, and they faced the combined trained bands of maybe 10,000 strong, under Skippen's experienced command. So, on the afternoon of the 10th of January, Charles approached his household officers, the Earls of Essex and Holland. He told them that the royal family was to leave immediately and ordered them to accompany him. Holland drew Essex aside and convinced him that no sooner had they left but that their heads would be on a spike, for they were members of the Junto. So, they refused. Thus it was that the Royal Barge left London without its household officers up the river to Hampton Court, Charles the Electra Palatine, Henrietta Maria and young James. The young Henry and Elizabeth Stuart were left behind, already in the hands of tutors appointed by Parliament to make sure they are brought up good Protestants. Charles, the Prince of Wales, was left at Whitehall under the governorship of the Earl of Hertford. Charles had left London 
and there was to be no going back. Well, there we go. The kid gloves, if not quite fully removed yet, were in the process of being pulled off. Could they be put back on again? Does either party want to anymore, or is it inevitable now that we will come to fisticuffs? You will find out at the History of England, but if you are listening in real time, it may be a while before you do. Next week, I have a real treat for you. William Clark is the author of the Grey History podcast, Grey in the Sense of Nuanced, an absolutely superb history of the French Revolution. He has kindly produced a special episode for you all on English reactions to the French Revolution, and it is fascinating stuff. I am confident you will love it. Thereafter, August will be a special month for At A Gallop episodes, but I'll do a separate announcement about that. Until then, then, gentle listeners, may all your pineapples be smooth, enjoy William's special podcast, good luck, and have a great week. (laughs) 